I were to ask you what makes Christianity weird, you might have several answers to that question. By weird, I just mean strange or unusual. And if you consider all of the major world religions, what you find is that there's something that Christianity teaches that is singularly unique. Well, what is that? Well, we believe that 2,000 years ago, the founder of our faith, as it were, died. And that he rose again and that he is alive today. Put it this way. Muhammad died and is buried in Medina, Saudi Arabia. The Buddha, he died and his body was cremated in Kushinagar, India. You can go see his remains today. Confucius died and he's buried in his hometown in the Shandong province there in China. But Christians, Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, believe that he died for our sins on the cross, that he was buried, that he descended to the dead. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and is ruling and reigning this morning. He is alive today, this morning, and that he's coming again to judge the world. We believe, just as we confessed earlier, in the resurrection of the body. The bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead makes Christianity different. And we're okay with being considered weird because the resurrection also happens to be true. But what evidence is there for the resurrection of the Son of God? And what effect should the resurrection of the Son of God have on your life? For the answers to those two questions, please open your Bibles to the gospel according to John. The gospel according to John. We're going to begin in John chapter 20. We're going to focus mainly on verses 24 to 31, the end of the chapter. I'm going to mention a few things earlier in the chapter to kind of give us the context. But as we begin reading, this is the passage that talks about who you may know as Doubting Thomas, Doubting Thomas. And we may have some Doubting Thomases here this morning. But as we begin to read, let's just remember the context. In John chapter 20, Jesus has risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. He's appeared to his disciples, but there was one disciple who wasn't there when he first appeared. And that man's name is Thomas. That's who we meet. In John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24, this is what Holy Scripture says. Now, Thomas was one of the twelve called the twin. He was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. And see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, 
my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In this passage, I want to draw your attention to two things. Number one, the evidence for the resurrection and the effects of the resurrection. The evidence for the resurrection, we'll we'll see that in verses 24 to 27. And then the, the effects of the resurrection in verses 28 to 31. And I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, keep it open to John 20, because I'm going to point out a few other things in the chapter. But my prayer is that each one of us would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we would, by believing in him, have life in his name. And that we would be able, by his grace, to tell the world that the Lord Jesus is alive. Number one, the evidence for the resurrection. In this chapter, John, the apostle, draws our attention to two main lines of evidence to show that Jesus is, in fact, alive, that he's raised from the dead. Those two facts are this. Number one, the empty tomb, which he describes in verses one to ten. And number two, the eyewitness testimony, the empty tomb and the eyewitness testimony. Empty tomb, verses 1 to 10, eyewitness testimony, verses 11 to 27. So we're going to focus on Thomas, but before we get to Thomas, let me just summarize what's happened in the chapter so far. First, the empty tomb. In verses 1 to 10, John describes the truth that Jesus' tomb is empty. You'll remember that Jesus was crucified on Friday. That's why we call it what? Good Friday. And around six o'clock on Friday, Jesus died. He was hastily buried in a tomb before the Sabbath began. And that whole hasty burial is described for us in John 19. Holy Saturday is passed over in silence, but now it's Sunday morning, the first day of the week. You can see that in verse one. And Mary Magdalene is going to the tomb. She's, she's resuming Uh, activity after the Sabbath, she's going to the tomb to anoint Jesus's body further for burial. We're not told how she expected to get inside the tomb. We don't know how she was going to manage to roll back the stone, but she goes. And what we're told by John is that she's shocked. She arrives at the tomb. The stone has been rolled back and the body of Jesus is not there. So Mary comes back. She thinks that someone has stolen Jesus's body and she runs back to Simon Peter and to John verse two. And she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. Grave robbery was a problem in the first century. The Romans had to actually make a law against it. So she thinks someone stole Jesus's body. Peter and John sprint to the tomb. I love the fact, I've mentioned this before, that John tells us that 
John actually beat Peter there. He's, he's like writing down in scripture, I'm faster than Peter. They get there, they look inside, verse six, what do they find? It says, Peter saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, that is John, who had reached the tomb first, he went in and saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. So a few things to note. Notice both these men see the the burial cloths in the tomb. Because there's two of them, according to Jewish law, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, they have two eyewitnesses that will stand up in court. Second, do you just notice how John draws our attention to the fact that, that this cloth was carefully laid and folded? It's as if, it's as if the Lord Jesus had no more use for it. And if you want to think about a contrast, think about this orderly situation in Jesus' tomb compared with what we read about earlier with the story of Lazarus. Remember when Lazarus came out of the grave, out of the tomb? He almost looked like a mummy. He's wrapped in the burial burial uh, cloths. Well, Jesus' clothes are just lying there. And so we have an empty tomb, but no Jesus. That's established in verses 1 to 10. Now, look at verses 11 to 27. We're getting closer to Thomas. Don't worry, we're, we're going to get to Thomas in a minute. Now, John focuses from the empty tomb and he changes his, his focus to the eyewitness accounts. First, the risen Christ appears to Mary, verses 11 to 18. The disciples go back home and Mary is weeping there by the tomb. And I love the fact, if you've read this account, when Mary sees the Lord, she doesn't recognize him at first. In fact, she thinks he's a gardener. I find out fascinating. A new creation is happening on the first day of the week. And she, she's in a garden and she thinks the Lord Jesus is a gardener. Well, he is the second Adam, but he's not a gardener. He reveals himself to her, his identity. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples. No, don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. Verse 18, I have seen the Lord. And if you've heard any Easter sermon ever, you know the importance of this. The testimony of women in the first century wasn't valid. A woman's eyewitness testimony wasn't acceptable evidence in the court of law in the first century. And so the fact that the gospel writers all ascribe the first eyewitness of the risen Christ to be a woman, namely Mary. Again, it it cuts against this idea that they concocted this story. Why would you make the first person who sees the Lord Jesus alive to be someone whose testimony wouldn't even be accepted? Unless it actually happened like this. I have seen the Lord, Mary says. Now Jesus appears to Mary. Then he appears to the disciples. Look at verses 19 to 23. Jesus appears to the disciples in verses 19 to 23. They're in a locked room. Perhaps they're afraid of the Jewish authorities. They crucified Jesus. Maybe they're going to come for them. 
But we're told twice in verse 19 and verse 21, Jesus appears to his disciples and he says to them, peace be with you. Verse 19, peace be with you. Verse 21. That was a common phrase in among the Jews. But what is so striking is what Jesus does between those two statements. Now, children, maybe you've ever played this game show and tell. You show something to your classmates or your friends and you tell them about it. Whatever your words are interpreting the significance of what you're doing. Jesus, it's as if he's playing show and tell with the disciples. He says to them, peace be with you. But then look at what he does in verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then he said to them again, peace be with you. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and he offers his hands and his side as evidence that he is, in fact, risen from the dead. But more than that, what he's doing by saying peace be with you and by showing him his wounds, he's showing the disciples how God in Christ has actually secured peace for them. Jesus is saying, the reason I can offer peace to you is because my blood was shed on the cross. I was pierced on the cross for your sins. And now because of what I have done, I can offer you peace with God. Peace with God only comes through Christ crucified dead, buried, and raised for our justification. So Jesus appears to the disciples. And now this is all prologue. You're thinking, how long is the sermon? Verse 24, we finally get to Thomas. We get to doubting Thomas. Look at verses 24 to 29. Jesus appears to Thomas. We're told there in verse 24, Thomas was also called the twin Didymus. He was one of the 12 We're not told where Thomas had gone. Now, just imagine it. All the apostles are there in the room together. Thomas leaves. We don't know how long he was gone, but he leaves for something. Maybe he had to go get a gallon of milk. We don't know. He comes back and they tell him the risen Messiah, the Lord Jesus has appeared to us. I mean, what a bummer for Thomas, right? He leaves. Jesus appears and he he's upset. He's He says to them, look at verse 25. This is where Thomas gets the nickname Doubting Thomas. He wants empirical evidence for himself. Verse 25, he makes an ultimatum. Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, the side that was pierced on the cross. He says, I will never believe. Now we are really hard on Thomas. I mean, we call him doubting Thomas, but if if you, if you read the chapter, remember what did Jesus show the disciples earlier when he appeared, he showed them what his hands and his side. And so I understand what Thomas is asking for here. He wants the same 
demonstration, the same evidence that the other apostles, the other disciples had received earlier. Now, many commentators are hard on Thomas. Uh, One commentator, John Calvin, he's normally very reserved. This is what he said about, about Thomas's doubt. Quote, the stupidity of Thomas was astonishing and monstrous. That's that's kind of harsh. But Thomas isn't the only disciple who struggled with doubt. If you remember in the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, right before Jesus ascends to heaven, he commissions his disciples to make disciples of the whole world. And we're told in Matthew 28, verse 17, he says, we're told this, Many of the disciples, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. So Thomas wasn't the only disciple who struggled with doubt. So the Lord Jesus shows mercy on doubting Thomas by appearing to him. And, And what we're told is that it was eight days later. So if you by Jewish reckoning, it's another Lord's Day, eight days later. The doors were locked and then something amazing happens. Look again. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Several things to notice. First, Jesus displays supernatural knowledge. He knows what Thomas asked for earlier without physically being there. Second, notice how John wants us to understand that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. He he, he stands up under physical scrutiny, this examination by Thomas. So Jesus' resurrected body, it's the same body, but it's also different. His body can be seen and touched, verse 27. It still bears the marks of his crucifixion, verse 20, 25, and 27. But apparently his resurrected body doesn't, doesn't need a doorbell to go into a room. He can pass through not only the linen wrappings at the tomb, but he's able to walk through closed doors. But Jesus is truly, really bodily raised from the dead. And so he says to Thomas, put your finger, see my hands, see my side. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Don't be faithless, Thomas. Believe. Stop doubting, Thomas. Believe. Jesus' tomb is empty. Because Jesus truly rose bodily from the grave. Two false teachings that attacked the early church were docetism and something called Gnosticism. Docetism was an ideology that said this. The physical body is merely the projection of the spirit. And Gnostic ideology said that the spirit is good, but the material body is an evil trap that needs to be escaped from. Now, you might be thinking, 
what does that matter today? Well, these ancient truths are still around. They're still around today. We just use different names. My body is false. My body is not the real me. My body is a plastic, moldable projection of my mind. Islam. Islam teaches that God would never let his prophet, Jesus, die on the cross. So even though it looked like Jesus dying on the cross, it only seemed to be Jesus. In fact, it was was actually Judas who was crucified. It just seemed like it was Jesus. See, that's, that's, that's a docetic belief. What the Bible teaches is that the body that God made is good. God made all of us in his image for his glory. He made us male and female, and it's good. We marred our image, his image, by willfully rejecting his good word. We sinned against our maker, but in his love, he sent the eternal son of God into the world who took on flesh, who dwelt among us, who was perfectly obedient in our place as the last Adam and who went to the cross to pay the penalty that we deserved because of our rebellion. And he physically died, was buried, and he rose again, conquering the grave on the third day, just as the scriptures promised. And what we're told is that that, that this, this actual physical Jesus glorified and raised is the one in whom he calls the whole world to trust. So John would later write in his first epistle this this opening. He says the, the message that we've received as Christians, it says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life. Paul would talk about how this Jesus who was raised, who the disciples examined for themselves, he appeared to more than 500 others. So if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you might be doubting that this idea of resurrection is an even a uniquely Christian belief at all. And just briefly, let me let me persuade you to study this particular aspect. If you look at the first century, everybody believed in life after death. Everybody did. Whether you were a Jew, whether you were a pagan, whether you were a Roman, everybody believed in life after death. But nobody believed in the resurrection except for a small segment of Jews. And what we find is that this small group of Jews who believed in the God of Abraham, who believed that God would send his Messiah, suddenly began worshiping Jesus, this one who was crucified as a criminal by the Romans. They began to worship him as the God of Israel in the flesh. And they began to tell everyone that he was actually alive. So, my friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, what do you account? What is your explanation? 
for 2,000 years ago for such a radical transformation? What explanation do you have that, that can answer this transformative impact, the enduring influence on the world that began with the execution of an obscure rabbi outside Jerusalem? The scriptures offer one solution. The resurrection of the Son of God from the dead. And I would like to invite you, if you you don't know much about this, or maybe you want to learn more about this, the best way is to to read. And so I would encourage you, if, if you have questions about this, we would love to read one of the Gospels with you. We're going through Luke's Gospel as a church. I've got several copies of Luke's Gospel. I'd love to give you one. If you would like someone to read the Gospel of Luke along with you, please talk to me afterwards. I'd love to be able to do that and try to answer the questions that you have. What effect, what effect should this have on our lives? As we close, let's consider three effects that this reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, must have on our lives. Verses 28 to 31. John doesn't just give us the evidence for the resurrection. He wants us to see how this impacts each one of us. First, the first is number one, trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. And this is for those who aren't followers of Jesus. And this is for those of us who are followers of Jesus. What is the effect of the resurrection for you, Christian? Trust in Christ. Because Jesus is risen from the dead, trust him as your Lord and your God. Look at verse 28. Thomas answered him, what? My Lord and my God. Thomas goes from doubting to offering the greatest confession of faith recorded in the New Testament. We should call him believing Thomas, I think, not doubting Thomas. He declares Christ's deity. He's not only his Lord and master, he confesses him to be his God. And don't you love those little possessive pronouns? My Lord, my God. This isn't just the Lord. He's mine. I've I've trusted in him. Earlier, Jesus had said, I'm ascending to my God and my father. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus is God and father becomes yours by way of adoption. John had said at the very beginning of his gospel, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man but born of God. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what John is saying here is that the resurrection of Christ is the ultimate sign that reveals who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. If you want to read the Gospel of John, the first 11 chapters are filled with signs that Jesus did. 
that revealed his true identity. But the resurrection is the ultimate sign. All of these signs that Jesus did reveals that he is the eternal son of God made flesh who came to reveal the glory and grace of God. He, he is the last Adam who came to rescue sinners who were condemned because of the disobedience of the first Adam. These signs reveal that he is the seed of Eve who came to crush his ancient enemy. He is Israel's Messiah who came to fulfill all the promises of God and to usher in a feast that will never end. He came as the true and spotless Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world, who bears the judgment of God in our place on the cross. He came as the risen Lord to restore God's blessing through a new creation that began when he rose on the first day of the week. He came to be our ascended king who is ruling and reigning and who will come again to establish fully his kingdom on this earth. So why do we, why did John record all of these signs? So that we, his readers, might believe. So you, this morning, you can have a relationship with your maker, not by doing anything, but simply receiving the Lord Jesus Christ and resting on him. Jesus says in this book, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. So trust him. Trust him this morning. Number two, treasure him. Do you hear that in the words of Thomas? He says to the Lord Jesus, my Lord and my God. Christians, verse 29 Have you believed, Jesus says, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. How many times have you read the Gospels and you said to yourself, man, it would have been been awesome to have been Mary, to see the empty tomb. It It would have been better to be there with Peter and John to see the Lord Jesus with your eyes. But Jesus himself says That there is a blessing upon those who haven't seen and yet believed. Who have believed because of the words passed down to us by Jesus through the apostles. One of the blessings, Christian, you enjoy and can enjoy this morning is the blessing of joy. We began our service saying that weeping lasts for the night, but what comes in the morning? Joy. Joy comes in the morning. All of us have been through trials and tribulations even over this last year. Even amidst the heartache and the challenge and the frustration and the discouragement that we face individually, no matter what you're going through, if you know Jesus, you know joy. Joy amidst your trials because your joy is beyond the reach of your circumstances. Your joy is seated on the throne of God in heaven. He is your joy. 
When Peter was writing, this Peter that we just read about was writing to early Christians who were being persecuted. What did he say to them? He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory because you're receiving the, 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 the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, brothers and sisters, treasure Christ this morning and pray, oh, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Third and finally, we trust Christ. We treasure Christ. And thirdly and finally, if this is true, we must tell of Christ. We must tell of Christ. Somebody, you're here this morning. You didn't just stumble in here. Somebody told you at some point in your life about this risen Christ. You're here because someone told you. And what the Lord Jesus does in this chapter, in verse 27 Verse 21, he says to the disciples, as the father has sent me, so I send you. He reveals himself to us by his spirit through the gospel so that we would go and make disciples of the whole world. You ask, what is Jesus's plan to reach the world? Well, just look around. You think that doesn't seem like a good plan. Is there a second plan? No, this is the plan. But this is the plan that God has used from the very beginning. He uses weak, insignificant people like us to share the good news. And through that message, God gives us the gospel, the power of God for salvation for all who believe. So if we are his followers, we will center our lives in a local church who gathers and who scatters to make disciples of the world. Mary went and told others the good news. The apostles went and told others the good news. John wrote his gospel so that others might believe. I wonder, some of you probably became Christians reading the gospel of John. I did. Maybe you did. So, brothers and sisters, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. If you have a friend or a neighbor or a loved one and you want to see them come to know the Savior, it's not rocket science. We pray for them. We pray for the miracle of regeneration. And we we ask them, hey, you want to read the Bible with me? Some folks would love to read the Bible, but they don't know where to start. What What a glorious opportunity. Now, as we close, I want us to be comforted by the resurrection this morning. Right before Jesus goes to the cross, instead of seeking comfort from his disciples, you remember what he did. Jesus, knowing he was about to suffer, knowing he was about to be betrayed, knowing that he was about to endure the agony of the cross. This is the love of our Savior. He seeks to comfort the very one's who are about to abandon him. Does that not show you the heart of your Savior? He turns to his disciples on the night he was betrayed and he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
That I go, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And do you remember who spoke up at that moment? Doubting Thomas. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And what was Jesus' response? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sins. So let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But friends, he is alive. The Lord Jesus lives. The tomb is empty. The new creation, as it were, has dawned. The one who is crowned with thorns is crowned with glory and honor now. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. And if you trust in Christ, just like Thomas, you will one day behold his wounds in his hands and in his side, in beauty, glorified, like we sang earlier. And the praise and the glory of our Redeemer will be shouted and praised throughout all eternity. Of these things, we are all witnesses. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that because the Lord Jesus is alive, hope is alive, joy is alive, grace is alive. We can know hope and joy and grace because our King lives and reigns. Our Redeemer is alive. Oh, Father, help us, help us today to delight in Christ to worship him as Lord and as God. Help us to share this wonderful news, this good news of great joy that is for all people. And we pray that you would hasten the day, O Father, when the Lord Jesus comes again. Help us to walk by faith now, not by sight, until that day that faith becomes sight and our prayers become praise. We ask this In the name of our Lord and our risen King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.